Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Malachi chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, And refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan. And those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have been tur- from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that the words of the prophet Malachi would be active. Father, that, that, uh, that it would be profitable. What he said and wrote so many years ago would be profitable to us, your church, today. And so bless every one of our thoughts and meditations and the words of my mouth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So Malachi was a prophet of God, and he, like all the prophets up to the time of Malachi, was sent in order to rebuke the people for their sins, for their unbelief and apostasy. Um, Throughout the words of this book, It's been um, a couple months since we've been in Malachi, but throughout the words of this book, you remember that the people questioned God with accusatory responses. The prophet would say something, and then it's said that the people would question what the prophet was saying. And uh, some of those responses are these questions, and you just get a flavor for the, the unbelief of the people through these questions. The first one is in verse 2 of chapter 1. How have you loved us? So in response to God, they say, how have you loved us? In verse 6, how have, you, how have we despised your name? Another question. Verse 7 of chapter 1, how have we defiled you? Verse uh, 17 of chapter 2, how have we wearied him? Or how have we wearied God? And then the same verse, where is the God of justice? 
So they're accusing God as they ask these questions. And the people have become brash in their relationship to the Lord. They've become brash. Um, While they multiply their sins, they begin to go down the rabbit trail, right? Adding accusations uh, of God to their own sin. So this, as we noted before, is the way of sin. What starts as dabbling in something becomes determining one's own path in life, which becomes accusations against God. And when you start blaming God, that's when you've, you've arrived in your apostasy. That rebellious sentiment is summarized in verse 17 of chapter 2, right before what we read. You say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. That's another accusation they make of God, that God delights in evil. That's nothing other than to attribute evil to God, which is, is the height of blasphemy. There's no further point you can go in, in your rebellion against God. Chapter 3 then opens with a prophecy of coming days, of things that come in the future. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So a couple hundred or so years before Malachi, another prophet prophesied. Uh, His name was Isaiah, and he prophesied about the same appearing of the same man. In Isaiah 40, we read this. A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain, a broad valley, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And so there's a clearing away of the path. There's a clearing away um, that is happening here. It's, I love those squeaks. It's, she just wants to add her voice to uh, the music here. Um, so Malachi and Isaiah's prophecies would be fulfilled later with the conception and birth of John the Baptist. That's when these prophecies would be fulfilled. He's the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. So 600 years before John's appearance, he's prophesied. Um, Matthew 11, verse 7 says this, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Right? That's Malachi chapter 3. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So quite a bit about John the Baptist packed into those verses, right? John the Baptist is often referred to as the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? In the past, but, but Jesus says he's even more than a prophet. He brings, he brings the last, he, he's, the, uh, he's, the, um, he's the introduction of the last prophet. Right, he's the um, the 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 what do you call it when you go see a band and they put somebody before that the the opening act, right? He's the opening act of the final and last prophet of God, right? And so, um, and and Jesus says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. So, like Malachi, John the Baptist called the people to repentance, right? He's performing the work of a prophet. Um, they're, they're monolithic in what they did, right? It was all about repentance. Come back to the Lord, repent, believe, right? And that's what John the Baptist did. He even performed a, a baptism of repentance. Not Christian baptism, not the baptism that we perform, but a baptism uh, calling to repentance and pointing toward repentance. Now, how is it that John the Baptist cleared the way before Jesus? Um, one commentary says this, the language is borrowed from the custom of sending pioneers before an eastern monarch to cut through rocks and forests and remove every impediment that might obstruct his way. Um, so, so how did John do that? How did he remove impediments to Jesus preaching and Jesus' ministry? Well, he preached repentance and he, preached, and he preached salvation by faith. Right, as all the prophets had done before him. Look at John the Baptist's ministry. He preached the word of God in the wilderness. He exposed the hypocrisy of, of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. He testified that Jesus was the Son of God, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? He exposed the sins of the main men of Judea, even Herod, Right, who beheaded John at the request of his, his wife. Right? He pointed away from himself and toward Jesus. That's what he did mainly. Right? Even though he was more than a prophet, even though there had been no one born of women who was greater than John, he pointed away from himself. John 3 says this, Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a, with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Right? And so that's meant to provoke John's jealousy. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. I mean, he just gets right back at them. I'm happy that Jesus is doing his work. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. 
He who has received his testimony has set the seal to this, that God is true. For whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son. This is still John testifying. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So there's John saying, look, don't, don't point toward me. Don't provoke me to jealousy. Look to God. Look to Jesus. And so I think a good way of summarizing John's ministry is this. He was ambitious for Christ's glory. That's it. He was ambitious for Christ's glory, and he was willing even to lay down his life for him. It is an uncommon attribute, right? To be zealous for the glory of someone else. It's an uncommon attribute, and perhaps the reason that Jesus said there was no one greater born of women is he was so selfless. He was so resolute in pointing away from himself. I mean, what man have you ever heard say who wasn't provoked I must decrease and someone else must increase, right? I mean, we might say it about our kids. I want our kid, I want my kids to have a better life than I did, but that's a whole completely different sentiment, right? That's so you can boast in your children. That's so you can live vicariously, right? But John just points away toward God knowing that Jesus is the only way of salvation, So John the Baptist was willing not to be the man, not to have to draw men after himself, but rather to point people toward Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was willing to decrease, and in that decrease, he brings powerful testimony to Jesus Christ, to the Son of God. How many ministers, how many Christians today are willing to decrease, willing to sabotage their reputation for the sake of truth? Right, willing to, um, to wreck their earning potential to point toward Jesus Christ. So many today preach the gospel for sordid gain, right? just for money. Unwilling ever to risk anything for the sake of building Christ's kingdom. And so John the Baptist was not about building his own kingdom. He was about building Christ's kingdom. And that's an uncommon attribute. It's uncommon. I think every man's heart tugs toward the building of his own kingdom, the boastful pride of life. That's what John the Apostle calls it. John the Baptist was clear, was, was the clearer of the way, right? The prelude, the lamp to Christ's light. He was the one who pointed away from himself and toward Jesus Christ. And so he was humble. He was humble, and God worked mightily in him because he was humble. If he had been proud, God would have been opposed to him, but he was humble. And so God used him to prepare the way for Jesus, his son, to take center stage in the redemption of mankind. It seems appropriate that John the Baptist, whose work was so humble, would die in such a humble way. Right? He was beheaded. Because Herod was too proud to disappoint his dinner guests. I mean, that is sort of an ignoble sort of death. Right? The man who lived in the wilderness, ate locusts and honey, pointed toward Jesus, died at the whim of petty people. Powerless. 
um, what he would not do in his life, parade himself around and make much of himself, Herod, in a sense, forced him to do after his death, showcasing his head on a silver platter to his dinner guests. The only way you could make John boast was to kill him and put his head on a platter. Right? It took the death of John for him to become the center of attention. Back to Malachi 3. There's another prophecy quick on the heels of the prophecy of John the Baptist. This time Malachi's prophecy turns toward the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now Calvin says two things are promised here to the Jews. Malachi, he says, then promises here to the Jews both a king and a reconciler. A king under the title of Lord and a reconciler under the title of the messenger of the covenant. And we know it was the main thing in the whole doctrine of the law that a redeemer was to come to reconcile the church of God and to rule it. So a Lord and a redeemer prophesied here. The messenger of the covenant, the one who fulfills the the terms of the covenant and a king to rule over the church. What stands out to me is that twice Malachi says the Jews were seeking this Redeemer in this passage. He says, and the Lord whom you seek, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Calvin, and I agree with Calvin, says this is, this is deeply ironical. Is that a word? Um, In other words, taken in context, there is no way to see that the Jews were either seeking or expecting the Messiah. And using irony, the prophet continues his rebuke of them. I think think Calvin is right in that the tone with which this is read must must be right. He says God has been presumptuously and shamefully impeached by them as though he meant not to fulfill his promises. Hence the prophet says ironically... And sharply, too, that Christ was expected by the Jews, for they murmured because God had too long deferred his coming. Oh, where is the Redeemer? When will he be revealed to us? Since then they thus pretended that they earnestly expected the coming of Christ, the prophet upbraids them with this. And justly, too, for they had expressly manifested their unbelief. Right, and so... I mean, 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And then three, behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Right? You can see the prophet sort of shaking when he says those things. He's saying them ironically. So many people today think that the prophets didn't use irony as a tool. Irony, they say, is cruel, right? Irony is cruel. Why would you mock sinners? But we see the prophets and the apostles and even our Lord using irony. And the, way, the, the reason you use irony is to make a stinging point. You, you want the point to get across, Now, we don't have the tone of the prophet written down, but I think the argument here is made from the context. It has to be ironically said. The Messiah is coming, he's saying, and you will not be ready. You are not ready for this. You're not ready for the Messiah to come. 
Like those virgins who did not prepare their lamps for Christ's return, so the Jews will be for Christ's birth. They have been told he is coming. Right? And the prophet goes on and says, when the Redeemer comes, it may not be as you expect it. But he will come with cleansing for his people. Not merely fury toward their enemies, which is what they wanted, but he's going to come with cleansing. His coming will, in some sense, be intolerable. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they then can present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, right? As in the days of old, as in former years. In Amos, in the prophet Amos, who preceded Malachi, the people called for the coming of the Lord. They, they kept asking, when is the Lord going to come? But it was foolish to call for the coming of the Lord when they lived in unrighteousness. Here's what the The prophet Amos says, says this, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I reject your festivals. God says to those people who were living in unrighteousness. I mean, that's an astonishing statement, isn't it? To say, you're calling for the day of the Lord, you're calling for the Messiah to come, and and it is not going to be a day of light for you. He's saying this to the Jews. Those who were longing for the coming of the Messiah would find that it was not a day of rejoicing, but a day of deep darkness and gloom. I, I... I think much of the church today, again, should feel the same way, right? The church has gone their own way. We've departed from the law of God and the law of the Lord. And I wonder if much of the church today will hear the, hear the Lord say, and I mean, I, I tremble for our own church in this and for my own soul. But at his return, say, depart from me. I never knew you, right? Call on the Lord. Come back, Maranatha, you know. And God comes and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I mean, that should give us all pause. That should make us read the prophets with fear and trembling because we live, too, in a day of unrighteousness. I mean, certainly that should give the elders of the church impetus to guard the purity of the church. We should be concerned about the purity of the church God's coming was a day of gloom to the Pharisees, wasn't it? It was God cursing them. And to the righteous, what was the day of the Lord's coming? It was painful purification. Painful. It is interesting that afflictions can always serve two purposes, can't they? They, they, they either condemn or they purify. Afflictions condemn or purify. Affliction comes to those who refuse to acknowledge God, and it serves further to condemn them in their unbelief. Affliction comes to those who acknowledge God, and love is appearing, and it serves to sanctify them and make them holy. This means that the exact 
the means may be exactly the same, right? But God's purpose, purpose is different in each of them. Um, do you believe that? God's purposes and afflictions vary according to the righteousness of the one who's afflicted. When you get cancer, its purpose is different than when an unbelieving man gets cancer. Right? When you are rejected, its purpose is different than when an unbelieving man gets rejected. Right? One is to purify, one is to condemn. The sons of Levi, these priests mentioned earlier who were blaspheming, would be purified like gold and silver. Why? Why was the purification coming? Well, God wants them to offer offerings that are righteous and not these unrighteous offerings that they've been giving. So what does all this refer to? I think the Levites here is a stand-in for the church because the church is comprised of a priesthood of believers. So I think this is, this is Malachi expanding out and using the Levites as a stand-in. With the coming of the Lord Jesus, the church would be purified in a way and, and, and by a sacrifice that had not happened up to that point. Right, The purification that Jesus Christ accomplished is better than the purification of the blood and of bulls and goats. The church is the fellowship of the redeemed, a royal priesthood of those devoted to Jesus Christ. At least that's what it's supposed to be. We live for the glory of the triune God, right? We live for the glory of God by his sovereign choice, serving him. We're to be priests to him. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We're to be priests, all of us. Just think for a moment about the mercy of God in sending his son. Prophet after prophet after prophet had called Israel to repentance, and they had rejected their message. Their sin has been completed, and yet the son, the last prophet, still comes. By the command of the Father, and gathers to himself the church, and sanctifies her by his sacrificial love. It's only by this that we can offer any acceptable sacrifices to God. It's only through Jesus' sacrifice that we can offer pleasing works, pleasing sacrifices to God. There have been been glorious times in the past for Israel, right? And that's what the prophet mentions here. Um, glorious times in the past for Israel when the righteous deeds of God's people stood out during the exodus, during David's reign as king, during Josiah's reforms, right? They did good works unto the Lord. But nothing coming close to the reign of Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Nothing like the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, that would allow his people to do great works for him, right? Are you, are you making acceptable sacrifices to the Lord? Are you doing that? Has God redeemed you? Has he saved you? Have he, has he purified you? Has he sanctified you? Then to what extent are those, and, and to what end are those gifts that God has given to you? Why would he sanctify you? Why would he purify you? Why would he call you into his household? Why would he make us a, a, a royal priesthood? You know, does, does he want you to go and hide your light under a bushel basket, right? 
Or does he want you to live as a priest of God? A servant, right? And expand your, expend and, and give up for the building up of the saints. So Jesus Christ has redeemed you for a purpose, right? And that purpose is, as Malachi states here, that you may offer acceptable sacrifices, that you may offer, um, make an offering of righteousness. And so, in other words, we usually talk about this in this manner. God has worked so that you might produce fruit. That's what he's done. He's worked so that his glory might be displayed in you, in the world, and then his glory is also maximized through that. God has worked so that you may produce fruit. Are you producing fruit? He's given you talents, right? Are you giving God back his investment with interest? What are you doing to build God's kingdom? What are you doing? Um, Ask yourself these questions. The world suffers in sin. Right? The world suffers in sin, and God has marked out his church as a holy priesthood. And that means we all have work to do. It means we all have work to do and may not simply expend our time on ourselves. There are obligations that come with being a priest of God. Right? So open your eyes, open your hearts, produce good fruit to the glory of God. That's your life now. That's your life now. Right to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. And so ask yourself how you're doing that now. Ask yourself how you're failing at that. What more can you do? Repent of self-centeredness. We all need to do this. What can we do to build God's kingdom and offer sacrifices of righteousness?